Welcome to the Lexington Public Library's Tales from the Kentucky Room podcast, where we discuss everything Lexington and Fayette County history. I'm Miriam, and in each episode of this podcast, we will feature a guest that will share a piece of local history. So thank you for tuning in and enjoy. As we are searching through our newspaper archives, every now and then my colleagues and I run into a newspaper headline that grabs our attention, and we can't help but dig a little deeper. It's a literal rabbit hole that propels you to keep following the story. For my coworker Aaron, and the producer of this podcast, this is exactly what happened with the story of the murder of Alexander T. Hayes. The October 21st of 1846 issue of The Observer and Reporter had a headline breaking the news of a horrible murder where a body was found on the side of what has since become known as Nicholsville Road. He was stabbed 86 times and shot in the head. The intrigue led Aaron to find out that the crime still remains unsolved. There's a lot more to the story. I'll let her share it with you. The headline of the Observer and Reporter's article on October 21, 1846, read, Horrible Murder. The body of Alexander T. Hayes was found by the side of what is now Nicholasville Road, about a mile from the courthouse in 1846. The murder was recent and brutal. Hayes was stabbed 86 times with a bowie knife and shot through the temple. Twenty of the individual stab wounds would have been fatal if inflicted alone. The coroner estimated that he'd been killed sometime before 10 the night before, and that he'd been moved due to the lack of blood at the scene. One of Lexington's oldest unsolved murders, Hayes's killing was the subject of a retrospective in 1892, nearly 50 years after his death, and now we're talking about it again in 2021. Much of what we know about the case comes from the November 20th, 1892 article about him in the morning transcript. Alexander Hayes had been in Lexington for about nine years at the time of his death, having moved here from Ohio. He was originally a printer and worked for D.C. Wycliffe's Observer and Reporter for a small time. And for the last of his years here, he had his own apothecary shop on Main Street. According to the 1892 article, he lived in a boarding house on Mulberry Street, now Limestone, and became good friends with one of his landlady's nephews, named John Hampton. The article calls them congenial companions, and Hampton would be seen daily in Hayes' apothecary shop. According to the morning transcript, druggist shops were often lounging places, and so was Alexander Hayes'. The morning transcript implies that John Hampton may have been Alexander Hayes' only friend. Immediately after the murder, the columnists of the Observer and Reporter described him as the most peaceable, inoffensive man we ever knew, retiring and isolated in his habits, had little to say or do with anyone, and not worth killing. It sounds like a sick burn, but they meant it in the nicest way possible, in that they couldn't understand who would harbor such malice toward him as to kill him in such a brutal way. In 1892, the morning transcript echoes the sentiment. They call him quiet, retiring, and unobtrusive. This was a shocking crime, both in its brutality, but also because the victim was considered to be such a quiet, retiring man with maybe one friend in the world. Naturally, people were horrified. 
The Observer and Reporter column about the murder was full of modifiers like inhumane, shocking, and the phrase, the gallows is far too good for the punishment of the inhuman wretch. The mayor authorized a reward of $250 for information leading to the conviction of the murderer, which is a large amount of money for 1846. It equates to about $8,700 today. And for some people, this would have been the same as their whole year's worth of income. Two juries would be convened to investigate the crime. The first found no additional evidence of the killer or the site of the murder and was dismissed. In early November 1846, a second jury was convened. They ordered the body exhumed to look for more evidence and reported that no blood or sign of struggle was found in Alexander Hayes' home, his apothecary shop, or in his wagon. On November 5, 1846, the reward for any information about Hayes' murder leading to a conviction was increased to $500, a truly staggering amount of money, $17,500 today, and opened to anyone, regardless of their race or gender. Yes, the original reward had been limited to white men. At some point after this, a warrant was issued for the arrest of John Hampton. He was accused of having ordered his brother Perry Hampton and another man, Al Wergert, to commit the murder for him. Apparently, Al Wergert's brother Billy had been hanged for murder previously. The morning transcript reporter wasn't sure if Perry Hampton and Al Wergert had been arrested or not, but assumed that they were. John Hampton was able to establish an alibi and was released. The second jury was dismissed, and according to the morning transcript, the investigation was abandoned after the release of John Hampton. You'd think a case this wild would have been covered every day on the front page, but it wasn't. The initial report barely made page three of the Observer and Reporter, squeezed between war and congressional updates and other local stories. As the investigation continued, mentions became fewer and farther between. So what was going on that was more newsworthy than a man who'd been stabbed 86 times and then shot and found by the side of the road? The Mexican-American War. And D.C. Wycliffe's massive hatred of Cassius Marcellus Clay. He managed to still devote valuable front-page column space to the negative reviews of Clay's anti-slavery speeches up north. Brutal murder of a one-time employee versus blasting a mortal enemy. Savaging a mortal enemy and riding one out every time. But mainly, it was the Mexican-American War. Begun in 1845, it was absolutely raging in late 1846. There were five battles in September and October 1846, all prior to the murder. The most notable of these, because it was the only American win, was the Battle of Monterey. In addition to being the only American win of the five battles that occurred between September and October of 46, the Americans and the Texans, yes, the Texans were separate because they weren't part of the Union yet, used new urban warfare tactics to take the city. Here's what they did in a very general sense. General Zachary Taylor attacked eastern Monterey from three directions at once and were successful in taking that half of the city. On the western side, the Texans attacked as the Americans went house to house, clearing Mexican soldiers from homes and rooftops. After the city was taken by the Americans and the Texas Rangers, Mexican General Pedro de Ampudia successfully negotiated an armistice with General Taylor, which gave the Mexican army two months to retreat behind the armistice line they drew. However, President James K. Polk was not a fan of this armistice, and it wasn't popular with the rest of the American army either. 
Polk claimed that Taylor did not have the authority to negotiate such a deal and that his only job was to, quote, kill the enemy. Taylor ignored him and allowed the withdrawal of Mexican troops, as Taylor and Polk and other generals sent angry letters to each other, which were published in papers like The Observer and Reporter. Ultimately, the Americans brutally occupied Monterey until 1848, oppressing and massacring the remaining Mexican civilians in the city. That's right, the armistice was only for the Mexican army. Taylor admitted to knowing about the war crimes his soldiers were committing, but made no move to stop them or punish the soldiers responsible. So what's with this guy, John Hampton? Let's be frank with this. Most of what we know about John Hampton comes from the 1892 retrospective article, and most of what is reported as fact is gossip at best and wild speculation at worst. But it's clear that this guy did not have the best reputation in town and was at least a person of interest in the crime, and that's enough for him to be worthy of discussion. So here's what we're told about him. He lived in the same boarding house with Alexander Hayes. His aunt ran it, and his three or four brothers boarded with her. He is said to have owned a livery stable in a pool hall and had a money-making turn, which I take to mean that he was successful in his various businesses. The Morning Transcript reporter implies that much of his money may have been gained in a shady way, saying that he had buckets of it. We are also told that he had a relationship with one Miss Bunch, whose family was fairly well off, according to the Morning Transcript. The Morning Transcript reporter couldn't be bothered to track down her first name, saying only that it had been lost to history. We don't know what their actual relationship was, but it was serious enough that people began to gossip about Miss Bunch's unmarried status in a more malicious way. If you've watched Bridgerton on Netflix or read any historical novel, you understand that gossip can be more damaging to a woman's already few opportunities for her life. When John Hampton didn't immediately take responsibility by marrying her, prominent citizen Joel Higgins and several other citizens, called church people in the article, quote, laid down the law for Hampton and he doggedly married her. Doggedly means reluctantly, by the way. So he marries Miss Bunch under pressure, and then later, the paper implies too short of a time later, they have a child. John Hampton leaves town for a bit, and while he's gone, both his wife and infant child suddenly sicken and die. The morning transcript reporter says that their deaths were suspicious and mysterious, but nothing could be proved against or linked back to John Hampton. After he's interviewed about the Hayes murder, he's released and he left Lexington. He ended up in St. Louis, which is a pretty typical migration pattern from Kentucky. The paper reports that he married again, but the marriage failed, though his wife did survive that one. The Morning Transcript reporter claims to have met with John Hampton on one of his visits back to Lexington and described him as a feeble old man. At the time of the Morning Transcript's retrospective, John Hampton had been dead for at least two years. Let's talk about why John Hampton was a suspect. First, he seems to have been the closest person to Alexander Hayes. Statistics show that people are more likely to be murdered by people that they know rather than by strangers. Now, this murder was so brutal, and there wasn't a clear motive. No struggle was found in Hayes' home or shop, and the murder site was never found. And so it's impossible to determine who it could have been because there was no reason. It actually could have been a stranger. The Morning Transcript reporter claims that public opinion had already convicted John Hampton, so the investigation likely focused on him and missed other clues. 
Why was public opinion so against him? Well, remember, he didn't want to marry his wife, who was likely his mistress and probably pregnant at the time of their marriage. He had to be forced, which would turn public opinion against him. Then both his wife and child died suddenly while he was out of town. Suddenly enough that poisoning was suspected in their death, but nothing could be proved. Finally, even before he became close with Alexander Hayes, John Hampton and his brothers were known around town for being wild and rough. The term ne'er-do-well seems to apply to all of them fairly well. One brother was eventually killed while dueling in New Orleans. The morning transcript reporter continues reminding us that he had buckets of money and was good at making money, but also likes to imply that this money was somehow ill-gotten. No specifics are given, of course, just the implication of shadiness in his business dealings. So public opinion was completely against him. It was assumed that he made money on the wrong side of the law, that he killed his family, and so it would then track that he would kill his best friend. Let's talk about a couple of theories of the crime. The first one is absolutely ridiculous and one that my colleague and I just like bouncing around, but know that it isn't possible. Alexander Hayes was killed by 86 stabs with a Bowie knife. There's someone quite prominent in Lexington history whose weapon of choice was a Bowie knife. And we've done a whole podcast episode about him in the past. That's right, Cassius Marcellus Clay. He sliced up Sam Brown after Brown's attempted assassination, and in a particularly nasty way, too, nearly as brutal as this murder. However, Clay has a strong alibi. He was not only serving as a captain in the Mexican-American War, he was giving anti-slavery speeches in the North at the time of the murder. D.C. Wycliffe, if he'd had even a whiff that Clay had been involved, if Clay had even been in town, I feel strongly that Wycliffe would have tried to find some way to insinuate Clay had been responsible. What better way to deal with your mortal enemy than to implicate him in a horrifying murder? Now, on to John Hampton. The 1892 Morning Transcript retrospective goes a bit beyond giving just the facts of the case, and facts are being used in the loosest sense here. Remember that this is almost entirely gossip. But the reporter speculates on what reason John Hampton might have had to kill Alexander Hayes. I've also been thinking about it through my own murder-she-wrote superfan lens. So let's explore the speculation, shall we? Let me remind you of a few things. First, remember that Alexander Hayes owned an apothecary for the last years of his life, and John Hampton would spend hours there during the day. Remember also that Hampton was forced to marry poor doomed Miss Bunch, and she and her child sickened and died suddenly under mysterious circumstances. Here's another piece of the puzzle. As a druggist, Alexander Hayes would likely have been able to poison someone. You have to know the harmful herbs and compounds from the helpful ones, and which herbs and compounds are harmful in large doses but helpful in small doses. Something like digitalis, right? Good for heart disease in the right doses, but deadly in the wrong dose. Taking these pieces, you can put together the beginnings of a pretty good mystery plot. John Hampton asked, ordered, or paid his good friend Alexander Hayes to create a poison for his unwanted wife and child, or to even poison them himself. Hampton happened to be out of town, so if they were poisoned, it would have had to have been by someone else or something sufficiently slow-acting as to give him an alibi. Although what would be slow in an adult probably would not be in an infant. We know that they died around the same time, but we don't know the exact timing. Sometime later, Hampton realizes that Hayes is a liability. 
This is all speculation, remember, but perhaps Hayes began to blackmail Hampton, or his conscience caught up to him in a telltale heart style. But either way, he's a liability now, and Hampton has to take care of him. Again, allegedly, he doesn't do his own dirty work. He's thought to have hired his brother, and his brother's even shadier friend, you remember the one whose brother had been hanged for murder before, to take out Hayes. Since Hayes would have known them, Hampton's brother Perry was also a resident of the boarding house, he potentially would have gone with them willing, leaving no signs of struggle in the shop, the boarding house, or his wagon. Maybe they're extra brutal in the killing to disguise the motive, shutting him up, in a way that just a single wound wouldn't. 86 stab wounds and a shot in the head is wild, and maybe was done to point to someone who's out of their mind. They leave him in a well-traveled area, on the way out of town, to be found, perhaps to indicate that the killer left town. A stranger coming through town, killing a random citizen, and leaving them on the side of the road. Or maybe to indicate someone in the vein of the Hart brothers. This is, of course, complete speculation, and probably some character assassination, too. My apologies to the late John Hampton. There's no evidence that Hampton killed his family. Any number of diseases in 1846 could have carried off a mother and her infant at nearly the same time in a seemingly sudden way. We'll never actually know who killed Alexander Hayes, or why. All we know is what is presented here. To conclude... I'd like to leave you with a quote from the October 21st, 1846 Observer and Reporter. It will be utterly impossible for the author of this most cruel and inhuman outrage to escape. How wrong they were. Thanks for listening to Tales from the Kentucky Room, a podcast brought to you by the Central Library's Kentucky Room staff at the Lexington Public Library. If you enjoyed listening, please take a minute to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. If you have any questions about local history or genealogy research, you can visit us in the Kentucky Room to use our collection and newspaper microfilm, or you can email us at elibrarian at lexpublib.org. That's elibrarian at lexpublib.org. I'm Miriam, and we'll be back with another trip down Lexington's memory lane.